It's hard to capture in words, I think, the greatness of love. Its beauty, its excellence is simply unmatched. Actually, both believers and unbelievers can recognize love as the highest of all human virtues. There is. Some would even say that it is the very goal, or at least one of the goals, of human existence. And this is not only true of believers. Who was an avowed atheist, he wants the purpose of human life, no matter who is controlling it, is to love whoever is around to be loved. To be loved is likewise recognized as one of the best of human experiences. In the words of the Greek dramatist Sophocles, one word frees us of all weight and pain of life. That word is love. All of this, of course, makes love an incredibly powerful force. How powerful is it? Well, an article I once encountered in the Pathway, I think quite well. If you're not familiar with the Pathway, that's one of the, that's the official newspaper of the Missouri Baptist Convention. It's published bi-weekly, and it covers events that occur both within the Missouri Baptist Convention and within the SBC as a whole. Well, I was flipping through that newspaper one time when I came across this headline for one of the articles. It says, Atheist Responds to Baptist Service Love. I've shared this uh, article with you before, but I want to read it one more time. I'd like to read a few sections from that article for you because I think it vividly demonstrates the force, the power of Christian love. It says this, Kim Bennon was an avowed atheist. As a child, her parents took her to church, but no one could satisfy her with, answer, with the answer she saw. I thought believers just weren't intelligent enough, Menon said. Now a kindergarten, kindergarten teacher in Seattle, education is a central part of Menon's life. Striving to get involved in her students' lives and to know their parents, she believes that's how students best learn and grow. But Menon had no idea that this path would lead her into a Christian commitment. Three years ago, Andy Brown moved from Camden, Arkansas to Seattle to plant churches, aided by Southern Baptist Church's cooperative program, missions and ministry outreach, funded through their ties and offerings. Brown, after arriving in Seattle, registered his son for kindergarten at the local school where he was placed in Menon's class. The school building seemed to be in good shape, but Brown noticed that the grounds needed uh, landscaping and care. A lot of ministry we do is community service, Brown said. A constant presence in the community is the best way to reach people, so we kind of adopted the school. When Brown talked to the principal about his desire to help the school, uh, she was hesitant. Brown agreed to work with no mention of his religious beliefs, Everyone knew he was the pastor of the Landing Church, but there would be no pressure from Brown while he was on campus. He was there only to serve. Many teachers were curious why he would do all that work with nothing in return, so it piqued their interest. He could answer my questions when asked, Menon said, but that was it. The article then goes on to explain how Brown organized a mission trip, actually, where various volunteers came and helped him in Menon's classroom by making copies or grading papers or helping with assorted projects. Uh, Menon then goes on to explain how she sat and watched these people help with tears in her eyes. And she says, I never met anyone who did things like that without wanting something in return. I thought Christians were predators who didn't really care about who I was. They just wanted me to say a prayer and then not give a care about me. The article continues saying, 
For more than two years, the Brown family continued to minister to the school and to Menon, among others. They invited her to birthday parties, neighborhood get-togethers, and holiday events. They, they never hid their faith. Quite the contrary, they continually invited her to church. It even became a joke with Menon saying it would never happen. But as time went on, they all became friends, and she fell in love with his family. At the same time, Menon's marriage was falling apart, and she wanted to save it. She knew the Browns were pro-marriage and came to them for help. Menon felt hurt, unloved, and rejected by her husband. But the Browns showed her that they would love her no matter what. It made Menon wonder if if there was something to do uh, with all the talk about Jesus. I loved them at this point, she said. Yet I didn't want to come to church and get their hopes up and then disappoint them. The article then goes on to explain how Menon became increasingly interested in Christianity and how God continued to to work on her heart through a series of, of very unique circumstances until she was finally able to, or ready to repent and believe in Christ. The article then continues. It says, One day she called the church, and Brown wasn't available, so she spoke to a woman there. I feel something different inside me, Menon began to explain. During the conversation, the woman led her in a salvation prayer over the phone. Menon brought 19 of her unsaved friends to her baptism, and she is now the part-time children's minister at the Landing Church. My life has changed immeasurably, she said. I used to omit the words under God from the Pledges of Allegiance. I was for gay rights, and now I have a different definition of marriage, God's definition. I didn't even know what a gospel tract was three years ago, and now I'm handing them out. Finally, the article concludes by saying that the Browns are continuing to help men in with their faith, and it describes what other churches can do to support churches like the Landing. Uh, Menon, for her part, points back to the love that Pastor Brown and the people of Arkansas showed her. She says this, She says, tell the people in Arkansas thank you and that they are changing lives. There's a teacher next door to me and she's been burned by believers. They need to come volunteer in her class. They can give their time and prayers. Now, I I don't think I would agree uh, with everything that kind of goes on in that article theologically, okay? But I think it still illustrates the point. How powerful is love? Well, it's powerful enough to soften the heart of an avowed atheist. It's powerful enough to open her mind to consider that maybe what she believed about Christ was wrong. It's powerful enough to humble her and bring her to the point of repentance. Love is powerful enough that when the world rejects our beliefs as nonsense, when they look at Christians as backwards, ignorant unbelievers, or or ignorant believers in, in myths and fairy tales... Uh, They will still pause and consider again what we have to say once they see our love. And this really shouldn't surprise us. After all, Jesus told his disciples after personally washing their feet, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As I've explained over the past several weeks, love for God and love for God particularly as expressed by our love for those made in the image of God is the great commandment of the law. It's the principle upon which all the other commandments are built, the very foundation of God's commands for His people. This is why Jesus says that discipleship, that is to say Christ-likeness, will be evident by the degree to which one loves This is how Jesus himself lived. He fulfilled God's law by loving to the very nth degree, by loving to the very end, even going so far as to lay down his life for his friends, to offer himself up as a sacrifice for their sins. 
We are no more like Christ than when we are humble, than when we love. In the words of Martin Luther, love is an image of God, and not a lifeless image, but the living essence of the divine nature, which beams full of all goodness. Love is the ultimate expression of the Christian faith. It is the goal to which all Christian doctrine is aimed in the life of the believer. It is meant to produce love. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.5, describing the objective of his teaching, the aim of our charge, or as it's translated in the New American Standard, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what Paul labored to see formed in his disciples. The intended product of his teaching was love. So again, it shouldn't surprise us that love is the instrument that God uses to melt the stony hearts of unbelievers because it is through our love more than anything else that Christ is manifest in us. It's evident from passages like Romans 1 that when it comes to one's relationship with God, God, no one's problem is primarily intellectual. God has actually made Himself known through His creation, through what He has made, and He's done it to the degree that mankind must actually suppress the truth of God, actually, in order to ignore it. So no man's problem is primarily intellectual. It's spiritual. If I could put it this way, mankind's rebellion finds its source, not in the mind, not ultimately, but in what we would, what we would call the heart. In other words, his problem is not with his eyes, it's not with what he sees, or or rather with what he doesn't see. He can clearly see that God exists. The problem is that he doesn't want Him to. He sees that God exists, but in seeing God, he hates Him. And so he responds to that, not by by believing in the truth, but by shoving it down and burying it under a mountain of lies and deceit. This means that for any man or woman to repent of their unbelief and turn to Christ in faith is not just their understanding that has to change, but their hearts. They must stop rejecting God and instead love Him. And how does God perform that change? Of course, the Holy Spirit is part of the answer to that question. And not an insignificant part, right? God must make a person spiritually alive through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in order for them to find God attractive. And apart from this regeneration, no one can love God. That's what passages like Romans 8 teach us. But I think another way to answer this question is love. God transforms sinners by demonstrating His love towards them. He does this first and foremost through His church, the body of Christ, the the present manifestation of Christ on the earth. It's as God displays His love, His beauty, as displayed first through His Son in the Gospel, and then after that, in His body, the church, that the world sees that its rejection of God is utter foolishness. And then all those lies that they use to suppress the truth, lies like the ones that Kim Menon used to believe, well, they begin to drop away. After all, the lies aren't needed any longer. Because the truth isn't as repulsive anymore. It's beautiful. It's desired. 
You've probably heard me say many times that while the purpose of the church is worship, its present mission is evangelism. And over the past several weeks, we've been reflecting on the relationship between love and this mission. Well, I think one of the major issues with the church at large today, particularly as it relates to evangelism, and I'm speaking of the church at large here, but the major problem, one of the major issues with the church at large today with evangelism is that we do not love Our families lack the distinctive mark of love. It's very hard to distinguish any difference between our homes and the homes of unbelievers. Neither do we love our fellow Christians very well. Instead, our churches are often known for gossip and divisiveness and hypocrisy. So we don't bear the mark of Christ in our love for one another. And that's a problem because, right, Jesus said, one of the primary ways that the world will know that we're His disciples is by our love for one another. And then not only that, but we do a a poor job of loving unbelievers as well. Quite often, we're just as self-centered as the average unbeliever. We're not known for our sacrifice. Even as it relates to evangelism, the perception is often exactly as Miss Menon describes it. People think all we want to do is lead them in a prayer, tag another convert pelt on our belt, and then move on. We're not known for our real care, our, our, our real compassion for the unbeliever. In fact, I think quite often, when you look at what we tend to do when we do actually get around to interacting in the public sphere, if anything, it's primarily political, isn't it? A lot of the time. And it's not to defend the rights of others, it's to defend our rights. We come into the world making demands, saying, you must respect me and my voice, not asking how we can respect others. You know, it wasn't always this way. In fact, one of my favorite stories from church history comes from the 3rd century when a a terrible disease broke out on the Roman Empire. Uh, This plague, known as the Plague of Cyprian, is said to have taken the lives of over 5,000 people a day in Rome alone at its height. For some perspective, that's more than a 9-11 every day in Rome during the height of this plague. And of course, it wasn't just Rome that was hit. Many other portions of of the empire were hit as well. Uh, The bishop of Carthage at that time was a man by the name of Cyprian, and he described the plague as follows. He says, As the strength of the body is dissolved, the bowels dissipate in a flow. A fire that begins in the inmost depths burns up into uh, into wounds in the throat. The intestines are shaken with continuous vomiting. The eyes are set on fire from the force of blood. As weakness prevails through the failures and losses of the body, the gait is crippled, or the hearing is blocked, or the vision is blinded. This was just a horrible disease, which I think makes the actions of the Christians at this time all the more shocking. Pope Dionysius of Alexandria has left a description of these actions, saying, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sicknesses of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, 
a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. So according to Dionysius, Christians were literally caring for people suffering from the plague even to the point of death. They would go and they would, they would care for the afflicted and they would do this knowing, knowing that there was a good chance that they themselves would contract the disease and die in the process. But they did it anyways. And they did it joyfully. Describing the actions of unbelievers at the time, Dionysius says this, the heathen pagans behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Dionysius says that many of the pagans fled the cities while the Christians stayed and cared for the sick. Is it any wonder then that Tertullian of Carthage would say this of the church's reputation at this time. He says, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they are ready even to die for one another, they say, for they themselves will sooner be put to death, or will sooner put to death. I mean, is, is it any wonder that unbelievers would say, that, say this of the Christians given the way that they would act in the face of trials like the Cyprian plague? Or is it any wonder that less than a hundred years after that plague, Emperor Julian I, also known as Julian the Apostate, would note, quote, the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead and the sobriety of their lifestyle, or how, quote, the impious Galileans support our poor in addition to their own. All while, quote, everyone is able to see that our co-religionists are in want of aid from us. Julian said this, by the way, as he wrote a letter to the high priest of Galatia, urging him and his fellow pagans to keep pace with the Christians' deeds because he recognized that it was through the Christians' radical demonstration of love that the gospel was exploding across his empire. Look, the early church was, was known for its radical love. And it was through this means that the church overcame the early prejudice that led to persecution and instead conquered the Roman Empire with the gospel. I believe that if the church is going to regain its influence in the world, that if the gospel is going to again advance and the church multiply and grow instead of stagnate or even decline, then we must go back to the basics and become a people who are known by our love. We must learn to actually love unbelievers. Not merely say that we love them, not love them right in, in word only. And not merely treat them as a sale that we have to close but actually love them with gospel love, with Christ-like love, a love that sincerely cares for them and even sacrifices for them while they're enemies of God. The problem is, how do we do that? How do we learn to love? As we've said over the past several weeks, Jesus explains that all the law and the prophets are built on these twin principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's number one. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, this explanation is helpful because it tells us what to aim for. It, it sets a goal for us. What is it that God desires from us most? Again, basically, it is love. Of course, it's, it's love for God primarily. God wants us to worship. That's the basic commandment of the law. But this doesn't mean that love for God is somehow competing with our love for other people. Rather, as Jesus explains, the second command, love your neighbor, is like the first, love God. After all, man is made in the image of God. So God desires love. He desires worship. But the way He wants this worship expressed is, is first and foremost in our love for other people. He desires compassion, right? And not sacrifice. In the words of Andrew Murray, our love to God is measured by our everyday fellowship with others and the love it displays. Or in the words of Jonathan Edwards, love is the sum of all virtue and love disposes us to good. Point is, God desires worship, and worship is expressed in love for others. Again, Jesus' twofold summary of the law explains all this. It sets love up as the objective of our sanctification. That's our heading, that's our goal. We are to love. Well, once that goal is established, this concept reveals some pretty interesting things about God's commands. For example, on one hand, this principle explains for us why God commands the things that He does. Again, it all goes back to love. And it's also helpful because it shows us how to respond to God's Word does not, when it does not address a, a particularly difficult dilemma. Or when it issues commands that appear to contradict one another under one circumstance or another. Jesus' answer is helpful for all these different reasons. It explains God's commands to us. It gives us a grid or framework to interpret God's law through. However, the problem is that Jesus' answer, his, this twofold principle, it does not tell us how to love. It sets the goal. It tells us that righteousness is defined by love, but it doesn't tell us how to do it. Fact is, as helpful as this description of God's command is, it really only condemns us. It says that God demands love, and then it says that love is described in God's commands, and when I look to God's commands, what I see is failure. I don't do them. And since they're based on love, what they reveal is that I don't love. I don't love other people. And by extension, this means I don't love God. When I compare my life with God's standard of righteousness, it reveals that I fall short. I mean, I I covet. I get angry. Even when I don't outright lie, I'll, I'll twist the truth for my advantage. And this all shows that I'm a wicked person who does not love. So so really, this concept condemns me. It condemns all of us. Now, I would say that this concept gives us hope as well, because it would seem that the reason why God commands this perfect love is because this is how He Himself loves, right? He's asking us to emulate His love, and that gives us hope that He will love us like this even when we do fall short. But even still, the standard itself condemns us. So I think the question that should be on our minds as we ponder Jesus' twofold summary of the law is how? How are we supposed to do this? Clearly we're supposed to love. Love is the chief of all virtue. It's the goal of all God's commands. The problem is that we don't do it. So how do we develop and cultivate this kind of love? Keep in mind, Jesus isn't just demanding that we perform loving actions. Right? No, he's pointed to the internal part of a person. He says we must love God with all our hearts, 
with all our soul, with all our mind. He demands worship. He asks for real delight. This, he says, is the fulfillment of the law. Keep this in mind. Jesus has, has no interest in religious hypocrisy. He wants the heart. He even says, if we don't love other people, this is why. If we don't love other people, it isn't because of our behavior. It isn't a behavior problem. It's a worship problem. We don't love other people because we don't love God. We do not worship. So the question we have to answer as we ponder the implication of the great commandments of the law is how do we cultivate our love for God? How do we develop a heart of worship? Again, Jesus doesn't tell us the answer to that question with his twofold summary of the law, but that's the question we have to answer for grasping the implications of this concept, and that's what I want to try to explain to you in the time we have remaining this morning. Of course, this is a theologically broad question, how do we cultivate a love for God, and there are a lot of different ways that we could go about answering it. Uh, For example, if we're talking about the mechanism that God uses to transform us, the, the mechanism of our transformation, then we could point to the Holy Spirit. It's just as I said a moment ago. Mankind's problem with idolatry isn't primarily intellectual. It isn't primarily a matter of ignorance or education. It's a matter of the heart. It's, it's wrapped up in our will and our desires. Man has inherited a sin nature from Adam down on. We're born with hearts that love sin and hate God, so we suppress what we know about God and we create idols in His stead so that we can pursue our sin with impunity. For us to love God, the Scripture says that God must make us spiritually alive. He must transform our will and our desires. He must liberate us from our slavery to sin, and He does this by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one answer we could give to the question, how do we love God? One answer is the Spirit. We could also point to the means that God uses to transform us, which is the renewal of the mind. We see from passages like Romans 12, 1 and 2, Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, and even 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that while rejection of God is not primarily intellectual, this is not to say that there's no intellectual component to it. Again, Romans 1 states that the way mankind reacts to his rejection of God is by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, we fear God and we cope with this fear by lying to ourselves about him. The problem is that the truth just keeps wanting to pop up and the lies compound and and so we heap lie on top of lie all to keep the truth suppressed so we don't have to come to terms with the implications of a holy and righteous God. Well, the problem for us as Christians is that even though the Holy Spirit has made us alive to God, even though we now love the truth when we hear it, we still have all this residue left over from that suppression process. We have this mound of lives that we've built up in ourselves over the years, which Satan has fed to us through the world system to keep us enslaved. So even now, even though we now want to see God, the problem is that we can't see Him clearly because of this mound of deception that's getting in the way from our past. And unfortunately, to some degree, these lives still work. They still push us away from God. And so part of what we have to do is, is excavate the truth from all the lies that we've heaped on top of it over the years so that we will no longer continue to reject God. When we do this, when we put away the deceit, And we put on truth, the Spirit convinces us of this truth, and He cultivates our love for God in us. 
Of course, there's still an active role that we have to play in scraping away the dirt. That's why, why when Paul talks about, you know, be renewed in the spirit of the mind, he, he has a, a command, but he also states it passively. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The idea is that there's, a, there's an outside force working on us as well, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And he's doing that renewal as we take an active role in putting off our old way of life, our old thought patterns, and renew them with biblical ones. In other words, if we're going to learn to love God, then we must cultivate our thoughts. We must study and then willfully, intentionally think according to the truth that is revealed in the Scripture. The Spirit will transform us. He's the one that does the work. But He'll do this as we renew our minds. This means that God, that's the means that God uses to transform us. We can also speak of what I like to call the media of transformation. So you have the mechanism of our transformation, the means, and also the media. Media, of course, that that term is a plural form of the word medium. When we speak of a medium, we're talking about an agent, the instrument through which an idea is communicated. For example, when we use the phrase mass media, we're talking about instruments through which people can communicate to large groups of people, things like radio or television or the Internet. These are all various forms of media. Well, likewise, the media of spiritual transformation are the Scripture, the church, and prayer. Some Protestants would add a fourth as well. They'd point to the sacraments, but otherwise there are basically three. So we renew our minds. How? Well, first and foremost, we pray. We ask God to change our hearts. That's the first medium. The second is the Word. We renew our minds with the study of Scripture. We put on new thoughts by studying God's revelation of Himself. And then finally, there's the church. We spend time in fellowship with Christ's church, and we speak the truth to one another in love. We renew our minds in this way as well. And of course, the Spirit is active in all these media. He helps us in our prayers. He inspires the Word and convicts us of its truth. He indwells and matures the body so that we can minister to one another in love. So if we're asking ourselves how we can cultivate a love for God, this is another way we could answer. We could say we engage the media that God has established for our transformation. But the idea I want to focus on in the time we have left this morning is the message that transforms us. The message that transforms us. What's obvious at this point is that if we're going to love God, then there must be a renewal, an an inner renewal of the mind that must take place. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, right? All our soul, all our mind, and, and this is actually the basis of our love for other people. So if we're going to fulfill God's command to love our neighbor, then we have to start here. We have to start with our love for God. And this love is primarily internal. God wants us to love from the heart. Well, this love for God, again, it occurs as we renew our minds. We put off the old system of lies that we used to run away from God, and we filter out and discard those lies, and we put on biblical truth so that the Spirit can convict us of this truth and intoxicate our souls with the love of God. Of course, this all happens as we spend time in fellowship with the body, as we study Scripture, as we pray. But what is the content of that renewal, the content of that message? 
We're putting on these new thoughts, and these new thoughts not only teach us what God, love for God looks like, but they actually train us to love God. Again, there is truth that we can come in contact with in Christians, that, that as, as Christians, that can lift up our soul to worship and then spill out over in love. It transforms our desires so that we cease to be selfish and self-centered, and instead conforms us into the image of Christ. It leads us to love like He loved, with the, with the same level of humility and sacrifice. What is that truth? That's what I want to look at briefly. And again, there's, there's obviously more here than we can talk about in one sermon. The whole scripture actually discloses this revelation. But I want to try to summarize the big picture of what scripture, what scripture says and how it teaches us how to love God into two points. The first point is grace. Grace. If you want to grow in your love for God, then think often of grace. I think this point is best illustrated with the account of the sinful woman in Luke 7, 36-50. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like to follow along here. You're probably already familiar with the story. Again, this is Luke 7, 36-50. In this story, Jesus is invited to dine with a Pharisee, and so he goes to the Pharisee's house and he reclines at his table. Well, in the middle of the meal, this woman, who's known as a terrible sinner, she comes in and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with ointment. And as she kneels and begins the process, she starts weeping. And of course, what does she do? She wets His feet with her tears. And she wipes them with her own hair. And she even kisses His feet before finally anointing His feet with the ointment. The Pharisee, of course, is is scandalized by all of this. He can't imagine why Jesus would let a sinful woman do this to him. And he even reasons, actually, that, that Jesus can't be a prophet because of this. Because if Jesus was a prophet, then he'd know what kind of woman this is, and he'd never let her touch him. Of course, Jesus does realize all of this because he is a prophet. And he turns to the Pharisee, a man by the name of Simon, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And the Pharisee answers, Say it, teacher. And Jesus says, verse 41, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's a very common sense answer, right? The one who has the greater debt owes more to the one who forgave him. So it's, it's reasonable to assume that he's going to have a deeper love for that moneylender out of the deep gratitude he feels for the forgiveness of the debt. Well, Jesus says to Simon, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he says to Simon, so he turns to the woman, but he talks to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. 
for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. This is a very important principle. The one who has forgiven much loves much. It is grace, grace that melts the heart of the rebel and transforms them into a worshiper. You see, all of God's attributes are cause for worship, right? All of God's attributes are a cause for worship. I mean, His his power, His knowledge, His omniscience, His eternality, His self-existence, these are all awesome ideas that when we understand them rightly, they humble us before God and they cause us to worship. But here's the thing. Apart from His grace, what do all of these attributes mean to me as a sinner? What does His power mean? What does His knowledge mean, for instance, when mixed with His holiness or His justice? It means I'm in trouble, right? I'm condemned. Those attributes by themselves don't make me love God. Not as a sinner. Not in my condition. Actually, they cause me to fear Him and to run away. This is really where the whole Romans 1 process starts. In in my sin, I stand condemned. Satan tempts me, he exposes my sin, and then he whispers in my ear, he's a just God. He means to punish you. And this much is true. God is just, and he will punish my sin. It's just not the whole truth. Right? It fails to mention his grace. So what what do I do in that condition? What do I do... What do we all do apart from God's regenerating work? We start heaping lie upon lie upon lie on top of that truth. We cover up the glory of God and then we fashion some idol to erect, to worship in His place. And this God, if we can even call it that, right, it's a poor imitation of the original. Even if it's an image that we try to carve to vaguely resemble the original, it does so very poorly and it does not capture our imagination in the same way as the original. It's grace. It's grace that tells me that I don't have to run from God. It's grace that tells me that I can stand before God as a sinner in all His glory and not be afraid. It's grace that tells me that all those attributes that can be employed against me for my destruction can instead be employed for me for my good. It's grace that stops the process of deceit and instead encourages us to bask in the light of God's glory. And of course, not only that, but as Jesus points out in the account of the sinful woman, it's grace that fills me with gratitude towards God as I realize how great of a debt I've been forgiven. I mean, when I realize how great of a sinner that I am, when I realize the kinds of things that I've done to attack God, and to diminish His glory, and what I've done unprovoked. And then I realize that in spite of all my hostility, God has loved me still. When I realize that the punishment that I rightly deserve, that God has freely forgiven me of that sin, and that He's done this at an enormous, enormous cost to Himself, even taking the penalty 
of my sin on Himself, suffering in my place so that I can have life. That not only fills me with tremendous gratitude, it fills me with worship. What what kind of a God does this, right? An, An awesome God. And that's who He is. Not the, not the God that Satan tries to tell us through the world system. He is. He's not the, the vindictive, hateful tyrant, right? No, He's a God full of love and mercy that we can run to in our sin and embrace and He will not turn us out. How can you not but sing in, in response to a God like that? And, and grace, by the way, is manifest in more than just God's relationship with us as sinners. It's expressed in His love for us as creatures as well. In other words, e- even apart from our sin, God is gracious to us. He creates us and He gives us life. He sustains the creation by the power of His Word so that we might live. He does this, by the way, both for the sinner and the saint. For those of us in Christ, He also orchestrates the circumstances of our life for our goods so that we might grow in our love for God. Basically, He takes care of us. And we can think on these things as well and be grateful. Our love for God can be cultivated by the thought that God loves us and that He cares for us and that He sovereignly rules over our lives for our good. Essentially what grace says is that we don't have to fight for our spiritual or even our physical lives because God will take care of us. Let me tell you, that will change. This concept, if you get it, it will change the way you interact with people. Listen, when when you realize that all of your needs are already taken care of, guess what happens? You stop engaging in this tug of war with other people where you fight with them to fulfill your needs. Your desires, actually, they're not needs. (laughs) And instead, you begin to wonder with boldness, actually, how can I serve them? That's where all this this conflict and turmoil in our lives comes from, right? James says it's because we have these unfulfilled desires that conflict with the unfulfilled desires of others. And so we fight and inflict pain on others as we engage in this kind of of tug-of-war to see who's going to get their desires fulfilled. Listen, when those unfulfilled desires go away because you realize that God in His grace will take care of everything you truly need, that battle stops. Instead, in gratitude to God, out of joy, actually, right, because of all that He's provided, you begin to look on your neighbor and see their hurts and their needs, and you wonder, how can I share God's grace with them as well and heal that? This is actually one of the eye-opening revelations of the Cyprian plague. The, The reason why the Christians at that time were so eager to serve their unbelieving neighbors was because they did not fear death. And they saw the whole ordeal as a trial. It was meant to strengthen their faith in God. As Cyprian of Carthage writes, he says, although this mortality has contributed nothing else, it has especially accomplished this for Christians and servants of God, that we have begun gladly to see martyrdom while we are learning not to fear death. These are trying exercises for us, not deaths. They give to the mind the glory of fortitude. By by contempt of death, they prepare for the crown. Our brethren who have been freed from the world. Think about that. Our brethren who have been freed from the world by the summons of the Lord should not be mourned, 
since we know that they are not lost but set before, that in departing they lead the way, that as travelers, as voyagers are wont to be, they should be longed for, not lamented. It's an amazing perspective. Dionysius writes this, he says, Other people will not think this a time of festival, but far from being a time of distress, it is a time of unimaginable joy. These people loved because they believed that God had already taken care of their needs. And they understood that if that would not be felt here on earth, then it would at least be felt in heaven. Do you know where this thought comes from? This comes from a people who have bathed their minds in the grace of God. They have cleansed themselves of the lie that says that God does not know, nor does He care. And instead, they have come to know, to really know, that their needs have been supplied. And so out of their great love for God, out of their gratitude and desire to see His glory magnified in the earth, they are willing to freely give their lives in the service of others. And this leads us to our second point which is this, faith. Faith. If you want to grow in the love of God, then you must learn to exercise faith. Now, I wouldn't actually separate this point from the first one, not entirely. In other words, this is, this is not a distinct concept from grace, I don't think. Rather, I would say this is one of the primary ways that God has established us to see His grace. We live by faith. If I could put it this way, the the Bible says that God is gracious, right? I mean, the Bible says that He is gracious. The problem is that I am very often overcome with doubts. Aren't we? Like Like we know that the Bible says that God cares for us, but there are moments where it's hard to see it. When God brings suffering in our lives, you know, the very suffering that the Bible says is meant to refine us and teach us how to love Him more, when there is this type of affliction that overcomes us, or when there's some obstacle in our path that we can't seem to overcome, it can be very hard for us to see God's kindness and grace. Instead, it can seem like God has forsaken us. It can seem like He's turned His back on us. And what do we do then? What do we do when we can't see the goodness of God? No matter how hard we try. No matter what we do. When the idols that, were, that we were once enslaved to, we see them tempting us again, what do we do when they rear their ugly heads once again and tempt us? We've tried to put off their deception, and, and, and we know that, that joy and comfort that, that, that they promise... They're lies, and we know that what God has in store for us is better, that there is real satisfaction to be found in obedience to His command. Like We know that all intellectually in our head, but in the moment we don't feel that way. You know what I'm talking about, right? There, there are moments in our life, whether it be in times of temptation or times of trial, when as much as what we, what we know about God is true, it's still hard to apply that truth to our hearts. What do you do in those moments? Again, ideally, we would just believe what the Scripture says about God's grace, and and that would lead us to naturally express this kind of love that God demands in His commandments. But what do you do when even after you've pursued those thoughts, you still have a hard time worshiping because you fail to grasp the goodness of God? The answer is faith. You live by faith. 
You live by God's priorities according to His pattern on the basis of His promises. In short, you ignore your doubt and you follow His commands anyways. And you do this so that you can see His goodness. This is actually a pattern that we see laid out for us pretty consistently in Scripture. God commands obedience by faith and then as a person obeys, they get to see His goodness and increasingly their faith in God is transformed from a hesitating, doubtful kind of faith to a firm and confident conviction. In fact, I would even say that this is the basic pattern for how sanctification works. There's an active component to my sanctification, and there's a passive component as well. It's the same sort of dynamic that Paul brings out when he says that we're being renewed in the spirit of our minds. James, I think, captures it well when he says in James 4.8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. God has made promises. Promises that He expects us to act on. When we draw near to God by acting on those promises, God draws near to us by delivering on His promise, and the end result is a closer, more abiding relationship with God. But when we do not act on those promises, God does not deliver, and not because He is not faithful, but because we did not act on His promises. And so God does not draw near to us by confirming our faith. Point being, our faith in God and our understanding of His goodness and grace and from our, uh, and, and our comprehension of these things, from these things, our worship, that's all either strengthened or weakened by the degree to which we obey in faith. Understand, our, our justification, right, it's not affected by our obedience. We have, we have a relationship with God whether or not we obey. But our experience of that justification which is expressed not just in a legal status, but in the ongoing fellowship we have with God as a result of that legal status, that is affected by our, our, our obedience by faith. You understand the difference there? We are children of God. We are loved by the Father, regardless of our obedience, because we're justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God's love for us is guaranteed, because when He looks on us, He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. There's nothing that we have to do to earn His favor. He is now always inclined toward us for our good. That can't change. What can change is our ability to perceive that love. And that is very much affected by our obedience. It is as we draw near to God in faith that God displays His goodness in response to our faith and our trust in Him is strengthened and confirmed and our love grows. And conversely, it's when we refuse to draw near that we do not witness His goodness and glory and so our love for Him grows cold. You understand what I'm saying here? The the, the variable in our relationship with God is not God's love for us. That's a constant. The variable, rather, is our faith. The degree to which we exercise faith is the degree to which we are able to, in the words of Paul, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what's changing or growing in our sanctification. It's not God's love. He's not loving us less or more when we obey. Rather, what's changing is our comprehension of that love. He does love us, and so He issues commands, not so that we could earn that love, but so that we could experience it or witness it as we exercise faith. It would seem that God doesn't just mean for us to receive grace 
in some kind of judicial sense only. He, he means for us to understand and experience it firsthand. Again, that happens when we exercise faith. After all, it's when we exercise faith that we can not only simply say that God is faithful, but rather I, I've seen and tasted His faithfulness. We learn of God's faithfulness not just intellectually, Rather, we experience it as we actually trust God in times of doubt and temptation and trial. So when you get angry, for instance, you get angry because of wrong thinking. Again, James 4 makes this clear. The reason why you dispute with other people is because you're seeking the wrong things and you're seeking them for the wrong reason. You're harboring idols other people are threatening to take. Now, in the moment, you can sometimes recognize the idol and and you can know that it's wrong, but you can still have trouble putting it away. As much as you don't want to be right, you still get angry. So what do you do in that situation? You renew your mind by actively choosing to shun the idol. You determine to turn away from it so that you can see how much better God's purposes are for you, which will, of course, help you eventually abandon that idol in your heart entirely. In other words, you don't lash out in your anger. Instead, you try with all your might to act in love so that you can learn by experience what Jesus means when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to love and serve others, meaning it's better for you, actually. You'll actually be happier, more joyful when you serve other people than when you demand, when you demand that they serve you. You discipline yourself to live by faith in that moment so that you can see the, w- the wisdom and goodness of God in His command and then you trust Him. And then, of course, He delivers. This is how you cultivate love when it's hard. You believe in God's grace and then you walk by faith. So grace and faith. These are the two components that God uses to transform us into worshipers that love the people around us. It's as you saturate your mind with the thoughts of God's love and then walk in obedience to His commands so that you can experience and witness that love firsthand. It's then that you'll begin to see yourself slowly transform more and more into the image of Christ over time. And I want to make that point clear, by the way. I think that's important to to note this this morning. This isn't instant. This process doesn't happen overnight. Again, because of the residue we've built up in our unbelief, even the the pain that we've experienced over the course of years, this renewal process is not instant. We have a lot of lies that we believe whose roots go very deep into our hearts, which we really have to work to uproot by receiving the proclamation of God's grace by faith. And as we walk by faith and see God's grace more and more clearly, as we touch it, taste it, experience it, this worship is going to build over time. And as it builds, we're going to see this increasing love for other people flow out But it is a process. It's not instant. It takes time. So don't think I'm saying that this is all going to happen at once and you can just go out and apply the principles I've talked about today and you're going to start loving other people tomorrow. It's gradual. But over time, as you apply these ideas, you will grow in your love for God and for others. So as we close this morning and kind of wrap up the past several weeks, let's pray that God would help us do this. Let's pray that He would help us cultivate this love for Him. After all, if we're going to accomplish our mission as a church, this is really where it begins. It begins with our worship. 
Evangelism is really just an expression of worship. Likewise, a love that God will use to soften the heart of, of unbelievers. This will come out of a heart of worship. It all starts there. So let's pray that God would help us cultivate this love for Him and that He would do this for the advancement of His kingdom and for His glory. Let's pray.